Welcome to Asia Rising, a podcast from La Trobe, Asia, where we discuss news, views and general happenings of Asian states and societies. I'm your host, Matt Smith. Asia's relationship with democratic governance is complicated. While some countries such as Japan and Indonesia pride themselves of transparent elections, the struggle for democracy continues in countries such as Cambodia, Malaysia, Myanmar, Thailand and the Philippines where growing authoritarianism can be a cause for concern for the future of democratic freedoms and institutions. Here to take the pulse of democracy in Asia is Dr. James Gomez, Regional Director of the Asia Centre based in Bangkok, Thailand. Thanks for joining me today, James. Good afternoon. Let's begin at the outset uh, with a bit of an overview and address the question in the podcast title, uh, Is Asia Becoming Less Democratic? So when you look around the region, where are your areas of concern? What are the strengths and weaknesses that you see? Is Asia becoming less democratic? I think it has always been more than less democratic, is my sense. And how I would frame it is really, given the lenses through which we look at things now with the health pandemic, I think there are a range of crises that have affected Asia, Southeast Asia in particular. These include health-related, such as the SARS, the bird flu, and now with COVID-19, we had issues related to finance, the global financial crisis. Uh, We had the 1997 and then also just some some 10 years back. All of these crises resulted in state apparatus coming in the front. And at the end of the crises, there was always some element of an authoritarian residue. So I want to venture and put forward that as a a way of thinking about the current situation and state of democracy in Southeast Asia. So it has been regressing steadily. And what I think uh, the last year and a half has done is it has accelerated the regression in several key areas. I think we have seen severe regression in freedom of expression, especially in the digital space. Because of the social distancing, because of working from home and movement restrictions, a lot of the articulations have gone online. And here, primarily, I'm, I'm speaking about political expression, organizing, coordinating, mobilizing. The states globally and in the larger Asia region have been using three tools. Uh, the first tool that I think we are most familiar with is the legislative tool. And a new slew of laws, broadly known as fake news laws, have been rolled out. And the key purpose of the law has been, of course, to combat infodemic and to deal with fake news online, scams and things like that, uh, but have been used uh, politically, mostly to stifle dissent against ruling regimes. So suddenly, political critics, whether they are from civil societies, activists, academics, politicians, parliamentarians, and so forth, have been put on the back foot through these laws. So that's one tool under that rubric of denying freedom of expression. But using laws, it's not cheap. It requires a lot of policing. You have to go through the court process, even if it's in the form of theatre. It involves a lot of PR deficit damage, but nevertheless, it's being used. But what we have seen across the last 18 months is a shift in tactic. And here I'll bring in Myanmar. In the Myanmar case, what we see in the region is a shift from the use of law 
to deal with issues of you know, political expression to shutdowns. It has moved to infrastructure control. But this infrastructure control is also quite clumsy and difficult to implement. There are some fallout costs. That's the shutdown, turn it all off. You can throttle speeds and you can physically destroy internet infrastructure. All three elements have been well used uh, across the last four or five months since the coup of February in Myanmar. Elements of it has been littered across the region, throttling internet speed. For example, Vietnam has used that. India, you know, in certain parts, sometimes also takes these kinds of approaches. Then we have an emerging approach called the gateway approach, where you can pinpoint and turn off access to a particular sites or a firewall, most well used, operationalized in China. Now that methodology is creeping out. One of the first states to go with this would be Cambodia. It has you know, announced a national gateway plan for the internet. It also is a precursor to a form of an intranet. And we can see if I can switch back to Myanmar, given the fallout of the infrastructure shutdown for banking and finance, Myanmar has now slowly begun to allow access to selected approved sites. So we've seen those sort of actions taken and changes to freedom of expression in quite a lot of countries in Asia. And also, you know, when you go into territories such as, you know, Hong Kong, there are big changes there. The problem that it is, is that it's not just a standalone issue. It's targeted with a lot of other things like, you know, clamping down on public dissidents or displays or those kind of things. When this happens, they're rolling out. I'm almost going to say, you know, that they've got guns on the streets to enforce these kind of things, but it's not happening in a vacuum. Sure. You need to have complementary tools. And one of the complementary tools zooming in on dissidents or criticism would, would really be surveillance. Surveillance has now been mainstream. For me, that would be the unique authoritarian residue of this crisis. In rolling out COVID-19 health protocols, many of the states in Asia have securitized their response. They've used the army, they use border patrol, they use the police, they use immigration, and they have also brought in civilian forces as well. In this range of security forces, state surveillance agencies have also been mainstreamed, both in terms of tapping their surveillance network and also surveillance tools for contact tracing. During this period, the collection of data is so sharp that they can pinpoint and track dissidents. That's why we, we see a high level of arrests because they are able to pinpoint through telephones who said what over which medium, and they can persecute them. So there is that additional tool that is also being uh, used, not just to clamp down criticism, but also to actually prosecute them and eventually shut them down. Yeah. The problem with that sort of thing is that in the current pandemic environment that we have, Phones are being used to track people's movements for the purpose of contact tracing. I mean, I know that there's a lot of people who are concerned about the fact that your location is being logged. And I know that there's people in Australia, for example, who are worried that the police can then go and access that information to see where individuals have been going. But when that's actively being used in countries, and I mean, you, you keep saying they, 
So an example would be would be helpful here. Are there countries that are using that sort of data where they shouldn't be to kind of encroach on civil liberties? I'll give you one example from Singapore. When the contact tracing regime was rolled out, the members of the public were assured that the data will be ring-fenced, used and discarded once the need was over. But during question time in Parliament, it was revealed that the police had actually dipped into this data and used them for criminal prosecution. An example was given. In this case, it was supposed to be a murder investigation. Uh, The law doesn't provide for it. Political assurances were also not met. A political reasoning was given that for the pursuit and investigation of severe crimes, that data may be used or accessed. I'll give you another uh, example, an emerging example, Timor-Leste. Timor-Leste, with the support from the Australian government who are advising ICT Timor, is rolling out a digital ID regime. And as part of it, in the pipeline is um, data protection and privacy law. The mechanics of data protection, oversight over the collection of the data, is all being articulated in principle and correctly. However, we will still need to go to the actual operation of the law because on paper, you have an oversight committee, uh, you even have keywords that such a committee will be independent. We'll really will have to see who sits on such committee and how they operate. Moving from a case such as Singapore that actually did go against the political justification when it rolled out. And then you have another case in the making in Timor-Leste, which may be closer to home in the sense that Australian experts are advising on the matter. The human rights or legal principles are all correct, but the operation of it is what I think we need to keep our eye on. Mm. So that's one aspect of how the pandemic is affecting democracy. But I suppose it would also be impacting elections directly, reducing the amount of voting booths in certain areas so that you don't get a lot of people attending and a lot of transmission. You can say that something is being done for those sort of reasons and reducing voting hours and those kind of things in the name of cutting down transmission options. But at the same time, you are reducing the options of voting. Is that something that you're seeing evidence of around the region? Well, incumbents have used the current ongoing crisis to their political advantage. So uh, depending on what style of political system a particular country in the region is, they call it based on their timing, if the timing is not fixed. The response has always been, it's not important. We should focus more on the importance of health and safety as opposed to elections as such has been some of the arguments. But such arguments on many cases have not been carried. So elections have been carrying on. And in Myanmar, that has been part of the problem put forward by the junta as an excuse as to why they brought in the state of emergency. So timing of elections are one consideration. If we look at Malaysia, what it did was it did not call for parliament sitting. Parliament sitting has been abandoned for safety reasons, uh, health reasons. It's an ongoing issue in Malaysia. Uh, Part of it is, of course, the politics of transition because we had a new administration, the Pakatan Harapan that came into power in the last general elections. 
through political maneuvering, we had a new government that has come in and whose legitimacy and voter support in parliament is still you know, held in question. Uh, so this was a tactic used not to convene parliament and to prolong and later on a state of emergency. So we can see the timing of elections and also calling of parliament. The third thing, and here I can give you first-hand experience because I participated in the most recent parliamentary elections in Singapore dubbed as the internet elections. We couldn't do door-to-door campaigning. We had to put out videos. There was some limited outreach given the conditions of uh, social distancing and permits on large groups. So there was no outdoor activities like mass gathering or rallies and things like that. But because you have the incumbent advantage and the incumbent has access to the mainstream media because it's not a competitive media environment, the ruling party not only enjoyed incumbency, but was also able to trumpet out its messages. So we see three elements of elections and democracy. I think we'll need to add one other thing to that, dissolving political parties. So in Cambodia, you have the CNRP, the Cambodian National Rescue Party that was uh, shut down in 2017, a couple of years later to Thailand, and the Future Forward Party was also dissolved by the Thai Constitutional Court. So this is another element that has also come to play And we expect in many parts of the region this to continue to happen. I mean, we can go back to Hong Kong where, you know, the political process has been hung for quite a few years now. Any chance of, you know, mounting a challenge is even more difficult with the national security law. So from the perspective of a a civil society organisation in Asia then, what would you like to see from countries like Australia to encourage democracy in the region? I'm not sure whether... Uh, I mean, we can have an ask, but we also need to have that ask in perspective based on past and current behaviours. And I will add to Australia, New Zealand, Japan, and South Korea and India. While these countries correctly can be said to observe democratic elections, competition um, in the traditional sense of the word, if we have them compared to other parts of Asia, as well as having independent institutions. Uh, It's all subjective and relative, but still in comparison to other countries. That is not good enough because the behavior of all these states, including Australia, vis-a-vis other jurisdictions that are challenged, politically challenged, is that they are not actively promoting democracy. Australian foreign policy is often think tanks, the military, in doing business. So it's that, you know, high level elite type of engagements with the elites of Asia. So it doesn't want to jeopardize income and revenue. It doesn't actively speak to civil society in the region. And it doesn't stand with it. Of course, we are not expecting state institutions to publicly stand because that's not what they do with civil society. But what we are looking at, whether the state has a strategy that works for it in terms of having a track three conversation. So if Australia wants to engage with the region, Asia, you know, to be a better neighbor, I think it needs to have holistic communication. In addition to its track one and track two engagements, it needs to grow and diversify its track three, which is civil society, broadly speaking. And it must provide or develop the tools 
for engagement with the third sector. Engagement with the civil society sector is very much limited to the trade unions that have always been very active. Uh, they have their own challenges. It's a generational challenge. It's a financial challenge as well in terms of what the trade union movement can do. A lot of good people I've met over the years. But I think the Australian state also has to put in resources and develop mechanisms and tools to reach out for its own interests and to have a holistic communication with the other parts of the region. So, you know, it can be a good neighbor. In that regard, I would suggest following the models in South Korea as well as in Taiwan. Both these uh, countries have legislated the establishment of democracy foundations. They get an endowment directly from the state. There are parameters for its operation, and this helps articulate democratic outreach. So hence, for me, Australia being part of the democratic court doesn't really work very well if Australia plus other countries such as Japan, India, and even to some extent South Korea and New Zealand are not doing this outreach and speaking to other democracy partners in the region. Mm. It sounds like what you're asking for, what you're hoping for, is almost the bare minimum of what a democratic neighbour should be doing to encourage democracy in, in other countries when there are examples of countries like, I guess, the most prominent one at the moment is Myanmar, in which Australia's response, for example, has been nothing. Are your expectations that low for the region? I think Australia and other nations can do a lot on the political front. So speaking out, issuing statements, that'll be important. Providing support to the frontline people in Myanmar, whether it's in kind or in substance. Talking to neighboring countries such as Thailand to ensure that they are not pushed back as people cross the border and maybe providing support to support initiatives that are keeping the spotlight on Myanmar. Talking to the third sector, the civil society sector, supporting them. We have nearly 9,000 accredited NGOs with the UN. Even if it's not NGOs from the region, I'm sure NGOs and civil society groups in Australia could also get the support they need, including academic institutions and think tanks, to kind of speak up for the counterparts in the region and include them. Okay, we might uh, take a, a quick question or two from the audience. So the first question that we will take from the audience uh, will be from Hunter Marsden. Thanks, Matt. James, nice to see you. Thank you for the brilliant overview of uh, authoritarianism and democracy in the region. I wonder in your explanation of some of the authoritarian innovations and tactics used against uh, free societies, do you see a trend of authoritarians winning? Or would you say that civil society has adapted equally to push back on these authoritarian tactics? Do you see one side sort of winning out or is it too early to tell? Thanks. Yeah. Uh, thank you, Hunter. Great to hear from you. Great question. At this juncture of history, I think the authoritarian regimes have the upper hand simply because they have the legal and political uh, advantage as well as the financial advantage. Uh, civil society is on the back foot. Yes, they have innovated and in creative ways, especially using the digital space. It has been difficult for many 
because if we look at being able to get on digital platforms first for all of us who had to deal with this whether we were working from home or adapting our offices and you know just finding the extra corner where we could you know do some filming or or live streaming or broadcasting we know we need space bandwidth and we need equipment these cost many organizations was slow to get on to it because they had to find the resources and many times uh, for those of them who have received some support from partnering organization just didn't have the financial protocol to approve these kind of equipment purchases because often this is not included in support because funding for you know civil society groups have also evolved and it has become very project based there's no core or institutional funding So as a result civil society was slow to kick off in the digital space but they somehow caught up. I think the key way to look at this is to ride out. If the landscape is not conducive, you know, it will be like banging your head on the wall. So it's rather to be tactical, to bite your time, uh work behind the scene, build your strength and get ready to launch forward again. would be my take on this so in short yes i think civil society is on the back foot at this particular juncture in history but it's not down and up and i would think we will also see a very very youthful and digitalized push moving forward thanks for that uh, we've got one question here which has come from an anonymous attendee so i'll read it out myself here uh, the gist of it is Considering the world has so many different cultures and ways of lives, some political systems may not be suitable to every culture and the world is not owned by western cultures and political systems alone. So essentially what this person is asking is why impose or why encourage I guess democracies in countries where they seem to be rejecting it. Well, democracy is really a, you know, kind of a technical word or conceptual word that we use. to really describe what people want. So, um I don't think from where I'm sitting uh with the interlocutors that I work with over many years anyone is really hoisting anything on anybody. I think what we are really uh, doing is articulating uh, observations and trying to figure out how people can emancipate themselves and also have a say in how their life is governed. So if we are able to approach that from a humanity human point of view then I think we can approach the issue neutrally as opposed to framing it in cultural lenses because the cultural lens is just a dimension of all the way we can look at humanity I would not agree with that point that this is a culture specific You've been listening to Asia Rising, the podcast from La Trobe, Asia. If you like this podcast, you can subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you may cast your pod. Please leave a review. They are always very appreciated. You can follow La Trobe, Asia on Twitter. We are at La Trobe, Asia. You can follow James Gomez and the Asia Centre on Twitter. They are at Asia Centre underscore org. I'm Matt Smith, and thanks for listening.